Welcome to another episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner, and joining me are... Jackson. And Carrie. Well, Jackson and Carrie, uh, it's great to uh, be together again for uh, this podcast. And today, our subject is applying a model of contextualization. And this builds upon a prior podcast. Uh, we are borrowing heavily from your book, Jackson, One Gospel for All Nations. We want to take a few minutes just to review. So we mentioned in our uh, first podcast that we need an approach to contextualization that is both firm and flexible. So could you just catch us up on, yeah, on what you mean for by that? people who hadn't heard, it was our opening episode, I believe, uh, How the Bible Frames the Gospel. And the kind of idea here is that in the Bible, we see one gospel, but it's presented in so many diverse ways that I started wondering, well, how is the gospel both firm and flexible? How is there one, but yet so many, many presentations? So as I started doing the research, I saw that there were two themes that seemed to go into any gospel presentation in the Bible. There were what I call framework themes and explanation themes. And we won't go into the whole conversation again, but in brief, Framework themes include the themes of creation, covenant, and kingdom. They kind of put boundaries around and provide the overarching uh, overarching uh, motif or, or theme uh, of the gospel, the context, as it were. Explanation themes are those or more detailed themes, like whether it be circumcision, offspring, the nations, uh, Abraham, these uh, sacrifice, whatnot. They fit within the framework themes. So it's like the framework of a house and then all the stuff inside the house would be the explanation themes. And and the framework themes provide the consistency, the firmness of the gospel presentations and the explanation themes uh, highlight the significance of the gospel and help us to contextualize it for very specific settings. So the explanation themes get their meaning from that framework. Mm -hmm. And so, Jackson, what you did is you actually looked at all the gospel uh, presentations or sermons in Scripture, and you identified these three primary frameworks, yes. creation, covenant, and kingdom. Yes. One is present in ev at least one of those yes. framework themes is present in every single presentation yes. of the gospel. And I chronicle in those in, in an appendix in the mm -hmm. back of One Gospel for All Nations, because I wanted to see that wherever the gospel is explicitly mentioned, either the verb or the noun, uh, that needs to be at least our starting point. It's not the, it doesn't shouldn't limit our understanding of the gospel, but whatever we think about the gospel thereafter needs to at least fit within those boundaries. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, wait, wait a minute. Now you just said the verb or the noun. I just thought gospel was a noun. Like, <laughs> how is gospel a verb? Well, you, the, when you talk about evangelize, for example, okay, uh, to share the gospel, that's the verbal form. I mean, think to gospel mm -hmm. the people, you know. Yeah. So it's to preach the good news oftentimes is the English way of translating. Yeah, that's actually one Greek word, isn't yes. it? Proclaiming yeah. the good news yes. is one Greek word. Right. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, that's a little bit of the background so that people can understand a little bit of what's going on in this conversation. So when we talk about applying a model, it's helpful for us to understand what we mean by framework themes and explanation themes, because if you collapse those two together, contextualization becomes much harder. And we end up confusing the two, and we lose the flexibility or the firmness that is inherent within the biblical gospel. 
Okay, so at the very beginning, Werner, you mentioned this is a model. And so I grew up, my adult, I became an adult in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the model for church planting, for discipleship, for parenting, I mean, we were into models. It was purpose-driven church, and then it was church planting, and then it was gospel-centered parenting. I mean, we loved a model. Mm. And so, but now I have seen some of those models fall short from time to time. So when I hear you say model, I am immediately kind of on alert because I think I, I just, I don't want another formula. I just don't want another formula. So I guess I, I kind of want to hear you respond to that. Is this just another boxed gospel presentation and understanding? Cause that makes me nervous. <laughs> no way am I talking okay, okay, about that. Okay. okay. So I like the fact that you use the word formula because a formula, you get an input, you get an output. And that's precisely not what I'm saying. It's like a cookie cutter. If I'm not a cooking person. Uh, I've never been confused for that. But if you think about cooking in two different ways, you have uh, these little molds that you uh, uh, push down onto dough and you get these shapes. Okay. That is kind of what you were describing, Carrie, that, okay. Okay. Now that sounds really easy. If that were all cooking were, well, then heck I would do that. But cooking provides a good uh, model because it has, there's a basic process that you go about when you're preparing or baking, or there's certain principles that are involved. There are certain steps that need to be done in a certain order or whatever else, but there's a lot of creativity within that. Mm -hmm. There's still guidelines and boundaries. I just can't, uh, I can't put uh, uh, like dough inside a crock pot and expect to get a cake. You know, and so that's more of what I'm referring to, that the, a recognition that there is a, a particular process and certain principles that are guiding us along. Um, and depending on what inputs we get in and, and what we want to cook and for whom, uh, it's going to look a little different. Yeah. In fact, I, I would say just the idea that we need to be both firm and flexible mm -hmm. uh, suggests that this is something beyond a formula. Yeah, people who tend to be a little more fundamentalistic or conservative really emphasize the firm aspect, and people who are not tend to emphasize the flexible component. Uh, and the truth is, is if it requires humility to recognize the value of, of both. Yeah, and it gets complex because, you know, the Bible is complex, mm -hmm. and also culture is complex. Our mm -hmm. world is complex. Yeah, and, and so cultures are ever-changing. Not, not only are there countless numbers of cultures and subcultures, but... They're all, they're changing too. So, say the culture of just say New York City is not necessarily what it was say twenty years ago. Yeah. Now you've mentioned uh, several times that uh, when we contextualize the gospel, we need to be biblically faithful and culturally meaningful, and that there's a process for doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Well. At at the heart of it is that, uh, and it's the way I present it, is that contextualization begins with interpretation. Uh, it Most evangelical discussions of contextualization assume some theology, some interpretation, and then they think we contextualize, which is to say we communicate it a certain way or we apply it for a certain context. And I, as I argue that it truly begins the moment we interpret the text because we, we are looking at the Bible through a certain cultural lens. We're going to notice certain things. We're going to overlook certain things. But even in the revelation of 
itself, God contextualizes his self-revelation using ancient Near Eastern cultures, mm -hmm. ancient Mediterranean cultures, so that, uh, that you have to understand that context. So there's this inherent uh, bring together of ancient and contemporary cultures that we have to take seriously. And that's going to affect uh, contextualization from the very beginning. So we just can't ignore the role of culture right away. Mm -hmm. And I think you have said this a few times is that it's not even a matter of, is this a truth or untruth, but it's a matter of emphasis. Mm -hmm. And I, I just heard this story this last week of there was a teaching on the prodigal son and we as Westerners like to kind of focus on like the son came back and he's been restored and um, the dad's kind of the, the protagonist in the story. But then there was, I forget, they, they were non-Americans, non-Westerners that were reading it. And their emphasis was really on, look at the famine. I mean, the, the son, what he did to his family was just wretched. But then he went off and look at the famine. So he might have tried to really work hard for himself and build a new life. But the famine, the famine, mm -hmm. they really were honing in on this idea of the famine. And, you know, I'd almost go back to scripture and go, oh, was there even a famine in, the, <laughs> in that story? That's not something that we typically even emphasize, right? Yes. So I think that is is kind of what you're getting at is this idea of what are we emphasizing? It's not black and white truth or untruth. Yeah, not always uh, is that the case. People get nervous about contextualization because they think that it leads to relativism, relativizing the truth of scripture. And your point is exactly right, that it's not always a matter of, is this interpretation right or wrong? Though that's certainly the case sometimes. But is our interpretation getting at the emphasis that the text is getting at? And is it emphasizing certain aspects of the text that our audience or our context needs to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, and so oftentimes I think our debates are not really about who's right or wrong, but what is the emphasis? And, and we need to be more humble to recognize we both might be right. And we just simply need to think through what needs to be underscored in this setting. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, Jackson, is that when Bible interpreters or people who are creating versions of Scripture you know, whether it's the NIV or the ESV or any interpretation of Scripture, people are coming at the, the text through their own cultural lens and sometimes their own theological presuppositions mm -hmm. or traditions. Yeah, because yeah. those traditions are subcultures yeah. and they come from various cultures. And that does not mean that we have no access to truth. It simply means that we have a relative perspective on absolute truth. Mm -hmm. We have a limited perspective. So we see absolute truth. We see what's really there, but we need to have a process of contextualization that's far more broad so that we can bring in multiple perspectives and then piece it together and get a more robust understanding of what the Bible is saying. The, I was looking at Dr. Scott Moreau's book, Contextualizing the Faith, which I know you guys also love it's as well. Excellent book. I felt like this, this quote really summarizes and hits home um, to what we're doing. So he says, Contextualization refers to how those people in the church live out their faith in light of the values of their societies. Contextualization, he goes on to say, contextualization does not focus purely on what we do. It also examines why we do it the way we do. Mm, so good. Yeah. I yeah. That was really good and helpful. Ab absolutely. And I think when, when people hear this discussion, immediately one of the things that has to be clarified is the relationship between the Bible and culture, because this is where everybody gets nervous. And usually people ask, well, it's either this or that. 
you know, what's more important, the Bible or culture? And already, if you frame it that way, you're, you're getting it wrong. Yeah. I I don't know if we talked about this before, but uh, at least in my first book, Saving God's Face, I talk about the question, what should we prioritize, the Bible or culture? And it depends on what you mean by prioritize, because prioritize just simply speaks to what is prior. You could either talk about most important or you could talk about time-wise, which is prior. And as we'll get into, I would say that culture is prior to our going to the Bible, but it's not most important because we all have a cultural lens that we bring to the Bible and culture is already shaping God's revelation. So it's inherently prior. And so it has priority in that sense. But in terms of authority, the Bible has uh, uh, has priority. And so we have to be humble and, and, and flexible in thinking, okay, what is the relationship between the Bible and culture? Yeah. That idea of relationship also helps me um, with regard to the fact that there is an ongoing relationship. There's a process. There's a conversation that we're in. Although we are firm on some things, we are also obviously on a lot of things in Scripture and the deity of Christ, the authority of Scripture and so on. We are also open to how Scripture speaks to us. We're open to new insights from Scripture, new perspectives from different people in the body of Christ as to the significance and meaning of the text. Yeah, and that's an, it's important to distinguish new insights, not necessarily new revelation, mm. but it's it's like this. When you read the Bible when you're 20, you see certain things. When you read the Bible when you're 40, you see some certain things. And then when you see 60, you see other things. You naturally understand, yeah, I'm going to have new insights. And that's all we're saying as we get more cultural perspective, when we bring in more uh, uh, cultural lenses, we get more insight. The Bible's not changing, but our relative perspective of it is. Yeah, and I love the idea that the Word of God, the Scripture, the Bible, uh, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ through this text is so vast and glorious and multifaceted that it, it will take us all a lifetime in order for us to... Uh, probably even begin to right. <laughs> really grasp the the beauty and wonder and glory of it all. Yeah. yeah. So I think a word picture might help. Because uh, one thing to say, hey, there's this tension between Bible and culture, but uh, I've suggested a few different word pictures, and they all have their limitations. But one of them is that of a, of a wheel, for example, like a, a tire on a car. You have uh, uh, the hub, um, uh, the, you know, the, the hub cap, the hub, well, no, the framework, I, I the just wheel. Went, the, went blank on, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the actual, spokes with the wheel. Yeah. The hard, the, which, you know, you know, the, you had the tire, the, it has the rubber. This is like right. charades. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just went blank on, okay. You had the rubber you have, and you have the, uh, a oh, rim and the road. So I think okay, the rim. So the rim is like the metal part that's actually structurally tied to the car, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That's firm, okay? It's tied to the car. Then you have uh, the rubber that goes on to that rim, mm -hmm. and then you have the road itself, mm -hmm. okay? Now, the firm uh, part is is like the framework themes. It's it's giving shape to everything else. The The rubber on the tire, it's flexible. It, it moves. It adapts to the road that it's on. Um, now, granted, there's a certain firmness there, but it gets a definition and shape because of its it's latched on to that um, to that rim, right? So within a tire, you have the rim and the rubber, and that's like the framework themes and the explanation themes. 
you don't the car doesn't function without both of them you, right. Tr- right. You try right. to drive a car with just the rubber it won't work try to drive with just the rim won't work and then what is the road it's like culture so different tires are more adapted to different roads mm-hmm. uh because the rubber you need certain rubber to to whether it's raining or snow or mountainous or desert whatever and, and that's the same thing the bible's full of these different themes motifs and images and word pictures and metaphors uh and they're all valuable but some of them get a little bit more traction in some cultures than others so maybe that's one way uh what what do you guys think about that does that seem to make sense or yeah i think i think that's a really helpful i think it it illustrates the firm and flexible you know? yeah and yeah. i love the idea of uh, the culture as the road yeah. with the the rubber or the tire adapting to the culture yet maintaining that central core of rigidity to the you know the core truth mm-hmm. it's integrity yeah right. Yes. right you know one other one other word picture um that I would have is like a ferris wheel you know a ferris wheel has a definite firm structure i mean it's not this flexible gumby like thing it's hard but yet if you think about sitting in the seats of a ferris wheel mm-hmm. it rotates around okay and you can only rotate around according to the firm structure of the ferris wheel but the perspective the relative perspective of people in different seats is going to be different mm-hmm. and sure you get your way all the way around the ferris wheel you're going to get a holistic perspective but at any given time in our life and our situation we're seeing things from a certain perspective out looking out into the world and so maybe that's also kind of helpful as we mm-hmm. think through how do you have firm and flexible because we have to realize that we all ha- come from a certain perspective truth is absolute but our understanding, our grasp of truth is not omniscient. You know, we're still learning. We're not God. Yeah. I think that's helpful, too, if there's people, as maybe they're listening and they're processing this in their community, it takes some of the fear away, I think, that w- what you're not saying is, oh, we just adjust the truth according to whatever culture we're in. I think that's that's a big, that's a huge fear. You know, I remember a few years ago driving in North Houston, there was a church billboard and it said, culture is a changing, but we aren't. Mm. And, I, and I thought, that's just operating out of fear that, mm. that we're not willing to look at the firmness and the flexibility of the message of Jesus. And those people like that, people who made the billboard don't realize that they are working out of cultural perspectives right. and lenses and because right, right. subcultural lenses totally yeah i want to share a project with you that demonstrates how the work of mission one makes communities more like the kingdom of god mission one walked alongside our partner organization in nepal to create and implement plans that helped a community discover for themselves the transforming power of jesus these people went from living in caves with poor sanitary conditions to living in a village in a location with a smaller chance of landslides. Then they created a shared economy centered around goat husbandry. Sanitary conditions have improved and continue to improve. Meanwhile, people have seen the church as a source of blessing. Many began to come to faith, and today about half of the village are part of the church. This is a glimpse into the vision of Mission One to see every community transform for the glory of God and the honor of all people. To learn more about Mission One projects like this one, visit missionone.org.
may ask is, okay, we don't have access to these ancient cultures directly. And so uh, it seems kind of hopeless or, or, or people may despair of, well, how do we in today's culture somehow have a grasp on biblical culture so we can understand the gospel? Because remember, there's two cultures going on. Those are the Bible and this as readers, right? Mm -hmm. And we got to figure out, well, how do those relate? The example that I've given is, 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 and I'll try to take this word picture slow, is think about the earth, the globe. And you have like the mantle and the core and the crust, right? These layers. And if you think about moving from the crust to the core as moving back in history. So the crust is like nowadays and going down to the mat, through the mantle to the core is like going back to ancient primitive cultures, okay? Going around the globe is kind of like crossing cultures, whether it be going to Indian culture, uh, you know, European culture, South American culture, whatever. All right. So as we now, now each of these different cultures today have roots that go back in history. Some like European and American culture are younger than, say, Middle Eastern and Asian cultures. So they have roots that go deeper and deeper, but some not as deep as the others. Well, and when you think about that root system, um, the people in the West are going to have access to certain uh, certain themes and ideas and values that, back in history. But people in the Middle East and and in the Far East are going to naturally have affinities or similarities with ancient cultures, whether it be a uh, value of honor and shame, understanding of collective identity, uh, filial piety, um, patronage, these sorts of things that there's a lot of resemblance between the ancient world and even contemporary cultures in the East. And so each culture has access and, uh, or advantages in understanding older cultures. So what ends up happening is this, I would argue that as we go around the globe, we get access to other root systems, other deeper root systems that access different aspects of older cultures and older biblical cultures. And so that what ends up happening is that we can actually use our knowledge of other cultures to give us a little bit of approximate perspective of what ancient readers may have thought. It's not exactly the same. If I understand Chinese culture, it doesn't mean I understand biblical culture, but at least it helps to have more awareness, more categories to approach the text with. Um, it's a little hard to see unless you see the graph, but the idea in, in short is that we can use contemporary cultures to understand biblical cultures to at least an approximate degree. It just simply so that we have better questions and, and, and we're aware of certain things in the text. I think that's a really uh, good picture, mm -hmm. Jackson. It reminds me of an experience I had, what you you just said. And I was in the Middle East with our Mission One ministry partner there, and we were at a at a restaurant, and uh, one of the people who was with us was uh, from a Bedouin background, and the Bedouin Arab background is extremely traditional. And I knew that they had some extra emphasis in their culture compared to mine relative to their ancestors. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I asked this brother, he's become a follower of Jesus. And I asked this brother, I said, 
how many generations can you go back where you know the father's name? Mm -hmm. And he took out his hand and he went one, two, third finger, fourth finger, thumb. Then he went to his other hand, six, seven. He said eight. Wow. I can go back eight generations, wow. right? Mm. And what it reminded me of is the fact that there are other cultures in the world who have this emphasis on history and blood ancestry, mm. which I, I, you know, I know my grandfather's name, but right. I don't know his father's <laughs> right, name. Right, right. I can go back two generations, you know, <laughs> and and it, it just lets me know that there are other cultures who are much more akin to the ancient cultures of the Bible, uh, where it helps us. Ex it helps to know why the New Testament begins with the genealogy, you know, yeah. and uh, there's an emphasis on genealogies in, in yeah. the Bible. And we typically s skip it. Uh, blah, 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 And yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, how yeah. we read that part. Someone, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And, -so, and, and for, <laughs> for many people, uh, it's their favorite parts of the Bible. Like right. I've heard of people in Africa who they just love it. They can't get enough of the genealogy chapters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it yeah. establishes, and this was the intent of Matthew in, yeah. in Matthew chapter 1, to establish the ascribed mm -hmm. honor of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ yeah. in terms of his... Uh, his lineage. Yeah. And to be clear, because I can easily hear people objecting, we're not saying, I'm not saying that contemporary cultures are identical to ancient cultures. And simply, it's simply that a, uh, to quote one scholar that I, I've quoted before, a multicultural perspective is more objective than a monocultural perspective. That these uh, a broader cultural lens, a broader, I didn't say alternative, but a broader cultural lens raises more questions, helps us notice more things that are already in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, this brings up a really kind of beautiful thing uh, in my mind, which is that in our own communities, and in, in most communities in America, even many rural communities, certainly suburban, certainly urban communities, there are people from other cultures and other nations. Many of them are also followers of Jesus, and some are not, but... I would suggest that in getting to know them and getting their perspective on the text, it will help us round out mm. and have a broader perspective. Absolutely. So this is a real benefit to us yeah. in, in terms of knowing uh, how to perceive the text. and uh, Or it can be. I'm not saying it's yeah. going to be in every case. I'm saying it can be. I, I think that's a, that's a great advantage mm. to living in a multicultural society. Yeah. yeah. So we promised that we would talk about a model applying a model of contextualization. So let's get into the model and then give your feedback, give your thoughts, ask questions so we can help clarify this. I, I say stage one of this contextualization process is what I'm saying is identifying biblical themes. And what I mean is we want to identify how the Bible frames and explains the gospel. This is where that whole topic of framework themes and explanation themes matters. Uh, we're trying to basically map out uh, the biblical storyline and the key motifs and metaphors that it uses and interrelate them. And I frequently use these three concentric circles. It includes creation, covenant, kingdom. Uh, and within each one, I'll put explanation themes in the appropriate circles just so that when I say things like 
shepherd, for example. I would put that under kingdom circle because shepherd in the Bible primarily is used as a metaphor to describe the work of a king. Mm -hmm. And Abraham, I put him under covenant and a little bit overlapping with creation because so much of the Abraham story has echoes of creation as if it's like a new creation happening. And so it's the biblical narrative, the biblical structure determines what are the framework themes, what are the explanation themes. So it's a really interpretive component, but at a literary level, not a theological level, at a literary level. Um, so, so far, how does that sound? Identifying biblical themes. Yeah, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah. essentially what you've done in identifying these three frameworks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So notice how one of the guards in the system is that we're starting with the Bible, but we're not getting heavy in the weeds of interpretation. We're trying to keep it as a broad level, the obvious loose connections. So, for example, it's really easy to see uh, that there's this motif in Scripture of uh, linking a, uh, a new spirit, a new heart. That's linked with the new covenant. Mm -hmm. Um, a circumcised heart is linked with the new covenant. You simply are making these connections. Uh, the idea of offspring is a repeated motif. Um, I mean, it's so this is a very broad strokes for uh, it, it's just simply a broad mapping out of what the Bible has to say. It seems like, too, with this one, as we start in this stage one, identifying biblical themes, is that it might even be a worthwhile challenge for all of us to, for the next 30 days, as we're reading scripture and engaging with scripture is to try and think through, you know, where, where shepherds would, where would they fall in this? Oh, I'm, I'm reading about David. Okay. Well, that's going to fall under covenant or maybe kingdom, like to try and wrestle through some of that, maybe even making lists. I mean, I know Werner, you've got little crowns all over your Bible <laughs> as you are processing different aspects. So it might be a worthwhile 30 day challenge, would you say, yeah. so that we can internalize how to see these things. Yes, because otherwise what we do is we see these metaphors in Scripture and we give it meaning and significance for our own culture, but doesn't fit within the biblical story. Right. One thing that I recently did, I taught a class on uh, the book of Acts and we looked at several of the sermons in the book of Acts to identify what the key themes were in the gospel sermons in the book of Acts. And that's one way of pra very practically yeah. putting this into yeah. mm -hmm. into action is, you know, look at the first sermon, Peter at Pentecost. What was his emphasis? Was his emphasis on creation, covenant, or mm -hmm. kingdom? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can you can identify those yeah. things yeah. as you go through. Things like the splitting of the water, the separating of light and darkness. You see that both in creation, but you also see it in the Exodus story where God is creating a people with whom he covenants with. Um, see, these are all inter intertwined themes. You see, you know, Jesus' baptism going into the water and the Spirit hovering over, just like the Spirit hovers over Israel. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point about it being intertwined. It's not like these are three different silos right, of, right. of content, you know, creation, kingdom, covenant. Right. They're, they're oftentimes overlapping. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's why it's concentric circles, absolutely. And in fact, uh, I think I mentioned this before, in the ancient world, uh, the idea of who your God was dictated or was tied with who your king was. And, and in the Bible, in Isaiah especially, you see this idea that because God is the creator, king of the whole world, or the, the, because he is the creator of the whole world, therefore he is king. And so those relate. And then kings made covenants. And so they're all intertwined, but there are different emphases. Mm -hmm. Now, the second stage in the contextualization process, uh, I've labeled as interconnect 
cultural themes, interconnect cultural themes. And for those who like alliteration, all of these will have begin with I. So we had identify biblical themes. Now we're going to interconnect those biblical themes with cultural themes. What we're looking to do is we're trying to find which cultural themes faithfully frame and explain a biblical gospel presentation. Let me give just an example of what I mean. You take those biblical themes and you look at a certain cultural context and you try to find what are very similar, very parallel motifs in that culture, idioms, priorities, values that in some way have some kind of an echo or, or echoes almost like a hyperlink between one and the other. So, so when we think about covenant, for example, a fundamental theme within covenant is this idea of relationship. There's a relationship that's being bonded. So I would put, for example, in Chinese culture, and for that matter, many other cultures, one of those concentric circles wouldn't be labeled covenant. It would be labeled relationship. Instead of kingdom, I might label that as authority, maybe hierarchy as a kind of a fundamental framing theme that really dictates so much of a particular culture. In, in China, this, the na nature and uh, the wholeness of the world is a really big idea in a lot of its philosophy and religion. And so I might use that instead of creation. So you see how there are these more general themes that underlie creation, covenant, kingdom. And those become my concentric circles. Now, within those cultural themes, I could have all kinds of sub-themes. Maybe it's collectivism. Maybe it's like in Chinese culture, I might talk about the chairman or feudalism or the son of heaven that all have connotations that either concern, say, relationship or the, how the world works or hierarchy and authority, you see. So basically, you're creating those framework explanation themes, again, but for the culture. And you want to have echoes somehow correlated to the biblical themes that we saw. I really like that. Yep. I really like that because what this does is this takes the three framework themes of creation covenant and kingdom and gives them a corresponding label in today's contemporary situation. So for every person on the earth, there is an authority. For every person on the earth, there are relationships. For every person on the earth, there are world dynamics that they're involved with. That they see as order and the basic assumptions about how the world works. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's a very natural bridge to those three things. I really like that. What you see here is that it's scripture that determines the lens in which we analyze culture. Because so oftentimes when I've seen literature on contextualization, people will find some kind of motif or practice and there will be a whole lot on that particular practice, whether it be polygamy or ancestor worship. And it seems to dominate all conversations about contextualization. Whereas I would rather the scripture be the force that shapes how we think about contextualization mm -hmm. because creation covenant kingdom aren't just for the ancient near east they the underlying values and themes are impactful and, and significant for every world culture that's ever existed ever will exist mm -hmm. and so that needs to be the lens that we dissect culture and understand its priorities so so what if i solve the issue of polygamy 
it doesn't necessarily mean I, the gospel has touched on a fundamental worldview and values. Let me back up there. Yeah. You just said something about polygamy. Can you repeat that and explain that? You said, so what if you're talking about polygamy? Yeah. I didn't follow you right Yeah. There. Go ahead. You know, solving, addressing issue of polygamy is important. But if that is like the main thing that we tend to focus on when it comes to contextualization, then we miss the core dynamics of the gospel. Because sure, that's one aspect of morality that we might want to fix. Okay. So what if we fix that if we haven't addressed the fundamental worldview that the gospel wants to imbue us with, wants to shape us with, about Jesus being king, who, what our fundamental identity is, and how the world is to be ordered? Got it. So in other words, if you're addressing the issue of authority or kingdom, you're able to then more powerfully or more aptly or more fittingly address the issue of cultural practices. Yes, because you're dealing with worldview issues, not merely um, moral issues that stem from a worldview. Uh, really addressing not what people are doing, but why they're doing them. Absolutely. Addressing the why question. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I also like this a lot, Jackson, because it emphasizes and elevates the role of scripture in the contextualization process. We're not beginning with the cultural context. We're beginning with the Bible. Yes. That's yeah. what the limitation of so many conversations about contextualization is they look at a culture and say, well, there's a problem. There's a problem. Let's go fix it. But meanwhile, the underlying value system, the underlying worldview is not being really challenged. It's just, mm. it's just so particular on a certain issue. It also implies that we have to, as ministers of the Gospels, mission practitioners, whatever, we have to have a deep and rich understanding of the Bible and its overall story and the cultural practices that were presented in these ancient cultures of the Bible. That gives us a lot more authority and flexibility in being able to address these cultural dynamics that we're faced with mm -hmm. in our world. Yeah, and if I can... I can already anticipate some people's response. They feel stressed out and thinking, what? I cannot know everything about the ancient world and all the Bible and biblical <laughs> theology. I would have to have three PhDs to even hope to do all that. And I want to say, yes, you're right. If that's if you think that you're going to do contextualization all by yourself, you're right. That's going to be overwhelming. But this is meant to be a community project. Yeah. You know, we learn from people in history. We learn from people around the world We and our groups and our teams. We approach the text together, again, bringing together multiple perspectives, raising key questions. Hopefully other people will notice things that we've you know, overlooked and we'll notice things they overlook. So it's not a one-time thing where we just get together for a weekend retreat and then we contextualize it all. It's ongoing as we have more insight on scripture and more understanding of the culture. It's a cyclical process. Yeah, and it's, it's ongoing as long as we're involved in Christian right. ministry. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have identified biblical themes. Uh, stage two is interconnect cultural themes. Stage three is interpret biblical meaning. Okay, interpret biblical meaning. And I've called this exegetical contextualization. What I mean by that is that we use the cultural lens that we just got from stage two, this trifold lens frame view of culture to go to interpret scripture. and. Ultimately, that's what we want. We understand, want to understand what Scripture says, 
but we have to be humble to recognize that we're all going to come to the text with a cultural lens. And all we're trying to do here is be intentional to say, as I broaden my lens to include this particular context that I live in, what do I see in the Bible? Culture is, is nothing more than a filter for sure. And culture has no real authority, but it is a filter. And we have to recognize that and be intentional about that. So this is where we're interpreting the Bible intentionally through the cultural lens that we developed in stage two. Mm. Yeah. The, I'm, I'm coming at you with a lot of quotes today, <laughs> but this truly, I, th- I feel like I'll quote this book probably every four or five episodes, but is Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien's misreading scripture with Western eyes. And they say, if our cultural blind spots keep us from reading the Bible correctly, then they can also keep us from applying the Bible correctly. Yep. So this goes beyond, this is not just an initial evangelism conversation. This is a discipleship one. Absolutely. So let's say, for example, you wanted to deal with a cultural problem of ethnocentrism. Well, you would look at that graph uh, that, you know, that you organized at stage two, analyzing the culture and say, okay, where's ethnocentrism falling there? And I would put it under... Uh, like the relationship circle, maybe a little bit of the uh, the world circle in terms of these basic categories of humanity. And then I compare that to our first set of circles about the biblical themes. And I realize, ah, a lot of the Bible's discussion of covenant and creation could be really relevant uh, if, if I want to address ethnocentrism. And, you know, we're made in uh, the image of God and God... Uh, chose one nation to bless all nations. And I would start noticing things like circumcision is a symbol of, of group identity. And, and all these other biblical concepts end up being very helpful tools to address that issue in the culture. So that would be an example of how it plays out in discipleship, not just evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the fourth stage is what I've labeled infer cultural significance, infer cultural significance. I've also called this cultural contextualization, cultural contextualization. So by this, I mean that the Bible is becomes the lens through which we interpret and assess culture. All right. So to notice this is the fourth, the fourth and final stage. It ends with the Bible assessing critiquing the culture as we see it. So it begins and ends with scripture in that sense, in terms of authority. And so uh, one application might be to say, I'm looking at this idea of circumcision and, and this idea of who's accepted, who really is part of God's kingdom. Well, then I go and I want to apply that in a text and I realize, oh, wait a minute, in this culture, Everybody who wants to be accepted, wants to be an insider, seems to have to do this and seems to have to get their loyalty to these people. Or you may see some kind of problematic practice that you go, this kind of reminds me of the way circumcision worked in, in their group. And so that they're defining insiders and outsiders based on something other than Christ. Mm-hmm. And then we can start addressing that. And of course, you see certain ideas that, you know, in scripture that you go, oh, this would be helpful to explain the gospel or explain this idea better for the culture because that this teaching would be important. It's inferring cultural significance from what we have read in the Bible so far. Very good. Yeah. So identifying biblical themes, interconnect cultural themes, interpret biblical meaning and infer cultural significance. And then that those four stages repeat and repeat and repeat. 
as we get more and more understanding of culture uh, in the Bible. I think one of the the things that I believe about that step four, stage four, infer cultural significance is that inherent in in doing that step is both affirming the culture cultural diversity, but also subverting traditions which are against the kingdom of God mm-hmm. or which mm-hmm. are inconsistent with the life of Christ mm-hmm. and the, the life of the Spirit. So there's a lot of critique going on mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. We're not just saying things that are uh, culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. We're saying things that will resonate deeply. Mm-hmm. And in resonating deeply, may very well appear to be subversive to the status quo. Yeah, I think we all have a natural proclivity, either when we're doing ministry, either to affirm so much of a culture that we're living in or to be critical and attack it. And hopefully this model it just simply gives us a lens so which we can say, yeah, I want to affirm this. This is a part of God's subtle revelation within this culture, or this is a part of the Imago Dei coming out that we want to affirm and celebrate, and it's a bridge to a more holistic biblical worldview. But then there's other things we want to challenge and go, eh, not so much. We need a model, again, that also gives a firm and flexible approach to assessing culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you go, yeah, we're not going to give on these things, but we can be flexible in accepting that because the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. As we wrap up, I just want to, you know, someone's in their car, they're listening to this, they have nothing to write things down with, and they want like a visual something. Is there a place that they could go to see, you know, you talked about your Venn diagrams and you talked about these themes. Do they can go and kind of get a visual for what's happening here with the Yeah, the for the deepest explanation, you go to One Gospel for All Nations, the book, One yeah. Gospel for All Nations. But I, on my blog, Jackson Wu, and that's Wu is W-U dot O-R-G, jacksonwu.org, I have not only blog posts, but under the resources or tools uh, section, I have even short videos and explanations that develop this as well. Yeah. You're right. It would be good to close here let rest people's brain because, <laughs> and maybe let them rewind and play it again because there's a lot of word pictures here. But uh, this cycle, I think, kind of incorporates kind of the best of insights that different scholars have uh, found and put together when they talk about contextualization. Yeah, and, and I think there's there's tremendous value in being on a learning journey about this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to learn. To illustrate the value of this, I just want to reference one sentence. This is from chapter four in your book, Jackson. I'll begin here. We preach soteriology for the sake of doxology. At this point, we see the weakness of soterian presentations, which can so heavenly focus on personal salvation at the expense of Christology. Jesus can quickly be seen merely as a doctor of the soul who deserves our thanks rather than the king of kings who warrants our lifelong allegiance. And I think the value of having excellent contextualization where we magnify Scripture, but it's also culturally very meaningful, it ends up giving us devoted followers of Christ who who give their lifelong allegiance to the King of Kings. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we're all after. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So thanks for joining us today for doing theology, thinking, mission. We'll see you next time.
Oh, oh, oh.